0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the Open Book under the covering title of The Form of Sound Words and we adopted an alphabetical way of approaching it rather artificially but to just get some consistency and we are nearing the end of this little series and we've reached the word vessels. It came in our reading Those of you who are listening at a distance, you may remember that the Apostle has used that expression of himself. We read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and there I would just pick up our story once again. He speaks of himself in contrast to Christ. Verse 7 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You see, the treasure is what's in it and not the thing that contains it. Some of us have got one ability, some have another. The Apostle, I don't think, was a very prepossessing looking man. I should imagine if Michelangelo had been given a commission to carve a statue of the Apostle Paul He would have made a fine, majestic figure of it. But the Corinthians, he quotes from their own letter. He said, you know what you've said of me, don't you? You've said his bodily presence is mean and his speech contemptible. Because a Jew speaking Greek in a Greek city, well, it would be like that, you see. And his bodily presence, there's nothing to look at. Writing to the Galatians, he said, If it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I was with you in a bout of sickness, so distressing that the actual literal translation is, that you did not spit me out. I believe he was suffering from that dreadful disease in the east of Thalbia with the eye trouble. He was blinded for three days and it may have left a mark. So he wasn't a very prepossessing man to look at. But I should imagine that anybody dying of thirst in a desert wouldn't look at the vessel that brought the water. He wouldn't criticise that it wasn't Royal Crown Derby. He wouldn't bother whether it came from Woolworths or anywhere else. The one thing was it contained a treasure. Now we can't help but admire many things in the Apostle himself. But what we admire is the work of grace in that man's heart. The things that change that man. And so as he says, it's the work of grace, it's a mercy that I'm faithful, or I have this ministry, and in that spirit he said, I must conduct it to the end. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. But what a treasure these vessels have, haven't they? Love that passes knowledge, truth that passes comprehension, a hope that lifts us beyond beyond the very heavens, and all coming to us by instruments that are earthen indeed. The word vessel is not used so widely in our usage in English as it is in the original. We think of a vessel mainly of a pot, of some sort, a bowl, a glass, a cup. But it's used of a bag. It's used of a sack. In the book of Genesis, when... Joseph had the sacks filled with corn. That's the same word that we get translated vessel in the house of the Lord. So don't you worry as to whether your royal crown derby, gold, silver, pottery, bags, all sacks or anything. That doesn't matter. It's what the Lord chooses you to carry for him, contain for him, and be emptied out by him for the blessing of others. I always look at one little verse in Psalm 119, which helps me sometimes. They that love thee will be glad when they see me. Why? Oh, you're such a lovely look. Oh, no, no. They that love thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. When a person comes to you who has the hope, the anchor that you can trust, something beyond this veil of tears that you can look forward to, you're not bothering so much about what he looks like as to what the prospect he's holding out to you in the scriptures is like. So, Paul reminds you and me, we have a treasure and it's in an earthen vessel and it has to be poured out Now you do remember, don't you, in Matthew 25, the ten virgin parable, that five of them, they took their lamps, and they had their vessels, but they had no oil in them. If you're trusting in an empty vessel, that's something that will give way under you, fail you. It must be filled. God alone can fill so if you have an opportunity to serve you remember two things that you're very frail you're very frail we have this in earthen vessels you could easily be upset but why is it you are able to continue well because the life also of Jesus as well as the persecution and the opposition and the misunderstanding is yours the life also is manifest. And why is it that this affliction doesn't get you down? Because he says, we are cast down, but not destroyed. Why? Because it's why you look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. And if you went on to the next chapter in 2 Corinthians, he's taking you, to the contrast between the earthly house which we live in now, which is but a tent, a tabernacle, in contrast with the house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this we groan, being burdened, but what a day it will be when we move in to that uh, part of God's many mansions that he has reserved for his people. As I say, this word covers a great number. When it says about the strong man uh, and his goods being spoiled in Matthew, that word goods, household stuff, is this word vessel. Well now, this man that we're speaking about for, for the moment, the Apostle Paul, you remember? He was breathing out threatening and slaughter on the way to Damascus. I think he was being prompted by a very bad conscience. The conversion of the Apostle Paul started when he heard a man named Stephen go through the history of his people, emphasise the fact that Joseph the second time, Moses the second time, and then he heard that man pray for his murderers and he heard them say, I see Jesus at the right hand of God and died for that faith. And he was a Hebrew and a Pharisee and a man of great repute. He was a vessel of gold so far as his position in the earthly ministry was concerned. And so to stifle his conscience he did what so many have done since. He became very, very active. He went and bent of the high priest letters to give him permission to travel to Damascus and bring back those who had observed this heresy. Ah, oh, that's what was happening. So when he was stopped on the road to Damascus and he heard a voice from heaven saying, it is hard for thee to kick against the goads. The word pricks is the word an ox goad and it goes back to the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, practice of having a rather sharp-pointed lance resting on a part of the plough. And if the oxen are pulling their weight, they've got about a foot away from the point. Doesn't bother them. But if they back, if they draw back, if they're backsliding Ephesus as one of the statement is, if they're rebelling, they suddenly find this point Is there. He said, that's what you're doing, Saul. You're rebelling against the truth that you don't like to admit. And then he was brought down. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus. Well, we're not told any further in that chapter what the Lord said to him, except telling him to go to the house, waiting him. But we are told what Ananias was sent to say to him. And he said to him, that the Lord has appeared unto you, Saul, or Paul is going to be presently. You are a chosen vessel. A chosen vessel. You see, vessels, they don't appoint themselves. They are chosen. Of course, it's obvious in the literal sense, pots and pans, they remain in the ironmongers or the shop until you buy them. But you do not yourself make up your mind by yourself that you will become a minister. Of course, you do know there are some families that used to be more so in the days gone by than perhaps now, that because they belong to a certain order of society, one would go into the army, another would go into the law, And the other one would go into the church. They were the three professions open. But you can't go in for it like that, friends. You'll be an awful failure if you do. That this man was chosen. Now, when you wrote to the Galatians in chapter 1, you'll discover that he said, although I was a persecutor, although I pursued these people and Brought them to death. Will it please God who separated me from before my birth? Now Paul wasn't a Hebrew Pharisee before his birth. He wasn't born. But he said, God had a purpose before ever I was born. I came into a home in Tarsus. I had Hebrew parents. I was brought up a strict Pharisee according to my their parents' religion, and all the time, all the time, without him knowing it, he was a chosen vessel. And then he says, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Well, that's the earthen vessel to bear my name to kings, to the people of Israel, and particularly to the Gentiles. Some of the pots that they've discovered in the bases of uh, buildings in archaeological surveys have got ciphers scratched upon them. Names of a god perhaps. Name of a person. But the earthen vessel we're talking about wasn't walking about parading the name Paul. He says, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed. And then, of course, the word minister has got to be watched. Because today, you might think of the word minister as one of the elite. Oh, he's a minister. But, strictly speaking, when, say, a hundred years ago, the girl with a lace pitty for a cap opened the door for the minister to be announced there were two ministers, because it simply means a servant. Our Saviour said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so while it's an honour to be a minister of the truth, the honour is not because of the vessel, but because of the condescension of God who stoops to use such the Apostle said, in Romans, the 10th chapter, how shall they believe on him of whom they're not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How should they preach without them being sent? Of course you could say, well, God's not dependent upon preachers that he sends. He can speak to the heart and conscience of anybody at any time. Of course he can. But he doesn't do that as a general rule. Most of you who are listening to me can look back to some time when some earthen vessel, somebody of like passions as yourselves, as the Apostle Paul described himself, somebody dropped a word that uh, was a turning point for you, and that's how God has used us. So we have this treasure, and this treasure is in earthen vessels. Now we are told in 2 Timothy that we must discriminate between one type of vessel and another. 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. He says in verse 20 of chapter 2, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, Well, uh, 154 Beckenham Road cannot be called a great house because we've got no vessels of gold and we've got no vessels of silver. If you turn to the Old Testament description of the vessels in the tabernacle and temple, you'll read a passage there where it says gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, Brass for the things of brass. There's no silver plating in God's service. It's all genuine. Isn't that wonderful? And as I happened to say that about a week or two before I was married, somebody said, "Boy, we look no good giving him silver plate for his wedding present." But I wasn't talking about that. You see, it was only the fact there's something genuine about the vessel that the Lord uses. No mere ostentation. No parading. Silver, gold, earthenware. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth. Oh yes. And if the earthen vessels were not being used, and the ordinary common kitchen vessels were not there, it would be a bad sort of day for most of us, wouldn't it? As I said to somebody, I think this morning, if you had a golden kettle, well, you wouldn't get very much in the way of making a cup of tea with it because the poor old kettle might collapse instead. So a a steel or an iron kettle is far more valuable in the kitchen than a golden one. So you needn't worry as to the fabric. You needn't worry as to your upbringing. You needn't worry as to whether you're this or that. God has chosen, and he never makes a mistake. God chooses, and when he chooses, he equips, he fits, and he enables. Because, strictly speaking, he's going to give you the message, and he's going to use you to pour it out. Then we have these uh, vessels that are used in worship. I don't know whether you like to notice how they are mentioned. We have in the book of Exodus uh, all sorts of furniture. But that furniture is sometimes likened to the same word, or use the same word, Exodus 25, just by way of a passage. Exodus 25. Verse 39. He's been given a record of the uh, ark, the the table of showbread, the lamp with its um, branches. And then he finishes up and says in verse 40, the last verse of Exodus 25, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Here, Here are all these vessels. Made after a pattern shown in the mount. You would hardly think, would you, if you didn't know the Bible, that God, God so majestic, so beyond our ability to comprehend, so vast in this, is this universe that He superintends, that we are told that the light of some of the distant stars it taken millions of years to go at the rate of eight times around the world in a second to get here. And yet, and yet he showed to Moses a pattern and told him how many loops he was to put on each curtain, fifty of them. So God knows and can stoop to the smallest details. So we have vessels. That are used for his service and then the prophet Isaiah says be ye clean ye that bear the vessels of the Lord because all service is holy it doesn't matter what service a Christian is performing Martha Mary all the different ones with their different a ways of showing it are serving And he says, be ye clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. There's one vessel that I can show you. I don't know whether you can realise what that is. It's a great weight, you know. When I was struggling to get here, with that in my pocket, it was uh, making me go a bit nobsided. If I look through this to the light, I can just see a little translucence. It doesn't, it's not glass, but it glows a pearly colour inside. That's an alabaster box. That's a vessel. And it's been broken at the top. And there's the sort of vessel that that woman brought when she anointed the Lord at that last for his burial. You remember? And he said, rebuked his disciples because Judas said, what a waste. Couldn't that money have been spent on the poor? Have you heard that sort of argument before? He said, no. Whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, that act that she's done and her name will be remembered. So you see, you cannot always be sure what service is the most honourable or most valuable or most commendable. You just do what lies to your hand. And so we have a vessel that was broken possibly in pouring it out in devotion. So it's not a waste of time to turn aside from the busy world of service And give the Lord just a little time, occasionally, because he is worthy. And nobody will suffer for it if you take that rightful place and sit at his feet, even though Martha should call your names for not getting on with the washing up and dusting, as I suppose Martha was that type, very clean, very house-proud, very desirous of doing the utmost for this visitor that came, but sometimes (coughs) missing the very heart of service to give him personally all your attention when time will permit. And then we have um, the, um, in Psalm 60, of course, when I turn you to passages, I'm not telling you that this is the same word translated vessel all the time, But that is so, but I'm not burdening you for the moment with Hebrew words or Greek words. Psalm 60, uh, verse um, say say verse six. God hath spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. (coughs) Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the strength of mine head, Judah is my lawgiver, Moab is my washpot, over Edom will I cast out my shoe, Philistia triumph thou because of me. Moab is my washpot. (coughs) Now that's a, a term of degradation. The lowliest office that could be performed in an eastern house was to take a towel and a basin of water and wash somebody's feet. So he said, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom have I cast out my shoe. Because he was a victor and these were the conquered. And then you come to the New Testament and our Saviour, who was the victor. He, it says, knowing he came from God and went to God, so in full knowledge of who he was, why he came, and where he was going, he rose from the supper, he took a towel, and girded himself, laid aside his garments, took a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. That's the the lowliest work of service that could be done in an eastern house. And the Son of God, in full prospect of sitting at the right hand of the Majesty on high, did that. Makes you feel ashamed, doesn't it? Of the way in which sometimes we like to pick and choose what we're going to do, what we're going to say, where we are going in our ministry. And then, when we look at the end of things, uh, for instance, look at the prophet Zechariah chapter 14. In this passage we have a view of what's coming in the future. With regard to the people of Israel particularly, and the nations of the earth that will be on the earth at the time of the second coming of Christ. In chapter 14 we read verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And you do remember that in the Acts of the Apostles, first chapter, he took his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And while he was yet speaking to them, he ascended. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And they looked and wondered, and an angel appeared and said, Why stand ye looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, whom ye have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner. There's nothing more explicit in the scriptures than that. So that anybody who has stood on the Mount of Olives will have stood upon the identical spot where our Saviour left this earth and where his feet will come again when he touches it. For God has said so, both in the Old Testament and in the New. So it says here, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And it tells you that so that you won't spiritualise it away into something else. It's on Jerusalem at the east. And the Mount of Aviv shall cleave in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. And I've been told that geologists, uh, geologists have looked with amazement at the configuration of the rocks at that period. And there is a scene waiting just for an earthquake or something at the very spot to split it open, and the river Jordan go pouring down a river of life, blotting out the sea of death, for it goes down to En Gedi, and that's on the Dead Sea. What a picture of when Christ comes, that there will be a river of water of life, blotting out the sea of death. All these types of shadows are worth pondering. And then he goes on to say, that when the Lord comes and the people of Israel are there, they shall keep the feast of tabernacles, each one sitting under his own vine and under his own fig tree. You get that in verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left. Do you notice that? Everyone that is left of all the nations. Left of all the nations. It looks as though there's going to be a great decimation among the nations, doesn't it? For the scripture to say, those who are left of all the nations, which came against Jerusalem, shall even go up from year to year to worship the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And then Egypt, which is such a type of this world that can apparently do without rain, because it can't really, because the Nile that flows through it comes from heaven ultimately, but that's the type. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now then, The last verse is 20. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Now those words were sacred. They were reserved for the royal or for the mitre that was round the head of Aaron the priest. Holiness unto the Lord. Now they're going to be on the very bells of the horses and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Again, even further, yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein, and in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So a day is coming when instead of this particular thing being holy and that particular thing being secular all these things will have passed away. No more Canaanite with all his abominations but even the utensils that are used in everyday common use shall be holiness unto the Lord. Now in Second Timothy it says in a great house there are not only vessels of wood gold and silver, but some of wood and earth, and some to honour, and some to dishonour. Now it's a great problem whether it means dishonour, literally, or without any honour. There's a possibility that the word can have a double meaning, because there are some things which are dishonourable, and if they are so, said the Apostle, purge yourself from these that you may be a vessel unto honour. But there are some who were taken captive by the Lord and their vessels without any honour. And so he says in the same chapter, he says, peradventure per God will give them repentance unto the acknowledgement of the truth. So we're not to be comparing ourselves with one another. In the Lord's house, in the Lord's service, there are all sorts of different vessels, all as it were, being used for the purpose for which they were made, not one of them envying the other, not one of them displacing the other. I'm sure that if Mother and I change places for one week, it'd be just like you and you, chaos. What sort of fist I'd make in the kitchen, I don't know. And whether the article she wrote for the Berean to be worth publishing, I don't know. I don't think we'll experiment, friends. I think we'll just remain in God's house, an earthen vessel, but meat here's the point. meat for the master's use. That's the point, isn't it? We'll allow him to do the choosing, we'll allow him to do the fitting, we'll allow him to place us where he, we can serve him best and acknowledge. That we're not worthy of the least and lowliest of service. And so we can think of our Saviour who came from so great a height and stooped so low and he said to his disciples you see what I've done unto you? Well he says you go and do likewise. So may the Lord help us to appreciate what it is to be a vessel even though we are earthen vessels cast down but not destroyed.